Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. To those of you that texted me yesterday, your prayers. Thank you. <laughs> Ouch. <clears throat> ushers, ushers, please. <laughs> if you have a Bible, open it to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, verses 22 through 25. As you're finding that text, let me say what I hope you know to be true. That God's word is indescribably powerful. In Genesis chapter 1, we see where God speaks. There's no beginning to God. There's no end to God. He has always existed. That's an incomprehensible truth there in and of itself. And out of nothing, the Bible tells us in Genesis chapter 1 that God speaks. He speaks his word and his word creates, and everything is made out of nothing. In Isaiah 55, verse 11, it says that God is saying through the prophet Isaiah that when I send out my word, it will accomplish the very thing that I intend for it to accomplish. It will not return void. In Hebrews, in the New Testament, in chapter 4, Verse 12, we read about the power of God's word. It's living and it's active. The description is that it's sharper than any two-edged sword. It divides, it pierces between a person's even soul and spirit and their joints and their marrow. It discerns our thoughts and the intentions of our heart. And it says that all of us, every single one of us, is laid bare before the authority and the power of God's word. God's word is indescribably powerful in ways that we cannot even comprehend. And the flow of the context of James chapter 1 is the word of God and its ministry in the life of a believer and in the life of a church. James has been talking to us in the beginning of the chapter about trials and temptations and how they will inevitably come. He says, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if, but when, that you can react in this certain way and that you can resist these tribulations and you can resist temptation and you can let God have his perfect work in your life depending on how you respond to the world around you and the residual sin within you. And James says here in the second half of this chapter, he centers and he focuses our attention on the Word of God. And he says three vital things about the Word of God in the second half of James chapter 1. And in verse 18, as we looked at last week, he says that we're born of the Word. We're born by the Word. The Word that created the universe also recreated your sinful heart into a new heart if you're a believer. That's the power of the Word. The gospel creates what it commands. So we're born of the word. And then we are to receive the word meekly. And now in verse 22, James is exhorting us to do the word, to obey the word, 
to actually live the word out. So let me read verses 22 through 25, and then we'll, we'll work through it. James writes this. Verse 22, I think, is maybe the heart. It's maybe the summary, like the thesis statement of, of this, this letter. He says in verse 22, James 1, But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. <clears throat> Lord, Jesus says in his priestly prayer in John 17, that your word is truth and that you sanctify us by your word, the truth. Do that today, I pray. Lord, I'm thinking of two people as we approach this text, which is clear and it's, it's, it's a weighty text. It's a, it's a heavy text. I'm thinking of those who are prone to have this admonition send them into despair. Lord, I pray that those would be encouraged this morning, that they would look away from themselves. And the other group that I'm thinking about this morning is those, those of us that are naturally bent towards pride and thinking about ways that we are accomplishing this. Lord, free us from that self-centered sort of legalism and the self-righteousness and l let this word this part of James, discern the intentions of our heart and lay us bare. And for all of us, Lord, let us leave this room more dependent on Jesus, more needy. Lord, we all come as beggars. We all come with empty hands to this text and to these truths and to the foot of the cross. Help us, Lord. Help us see things, beautiful truths. Help us see the gospel. Help us turn away from ourselves and Turn to you afresh, or for the first time. Or do these things, I pray, for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name. Amen. To help us work through this text, I've got a kind of outline that I want to share with you up front. In this text, just these few verses, I see one command, two responses, and a promise. One command, two responses, and a promise. Now, over the years, we've worked through some complicated passages of the Bible, and I, I love that the Bible actually says about itself in some places that it's difficult to understand. In fact, Peter, one of Jesus' closest disciples, one of Jesus' best friends while he was here on earth, says in his letter at the end of Second Peter, now Peter is referring to Paul's letters, he says that there are some things that Paul wrote that are hard to understand. And I really appreciate that because I think there are parts of the Bible that are mysterious and difficult to piece together. But I don't think actually this little short paragraph that we're looking at today is one of those. I think this is quite easy to understand, but I think it's difficult to apply to our lives, isn't it? And so let's think about what, what James is saying to us here. There's a, there's a command, verse 22. He says, but be 
doers of the word. And the context, again, of these verses is that he's told us that we've been born by the word in verse 18. Remember, we looked at how the gospel comes. It hits our dead heart. It brings life. God regenerates us by causing the good news of the gospel to make us alive, as it says in Ephesians 2. So James is telling us to, that we, we, are to be, we are born of the word. He tells us to receive the word. But here in verse 22, he says it's not just enough to be made alive by the word, and it's not just enough to receive the word or hear it, but his concern here is that we would also be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. He's, he's concerned that we would merely listen, that we would be people that merely accumulate truths, people that merely understand doctrine, but don't let our doctrine move us into devotion. Even good theology, James, I think, is concerned, can be corrupted. We can turn something like the good news of the grace of the gospel into self-deception and lull ourselves to sleep by thinking that merely by listening and giving mental assent to the truths that we know from the Bible, that merely by giving kind of mental agreement that we are okay with God because we agree. James's concern is that we would not deceive ourselves in thinking that it's enough to hear. Now this is not, and this is a theme that runs through James, this is not in contrast or a contradiction to what Paul has been telling us in Romans that we went through a a while back. Remember, we looked at Romans. In fact, Romans is an assault on human goodness. Romans is an assault on human self-justification. And the point of Romans is that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves. We're not saved by our good works, but we're saved by our faith in Jesus' obedience, not by our obedience. That's the message of Romans. And some in the history of the church and some commentators throughout the years have seen what they perceive to be a contradiction between what James is saying and what Paul has said in Romans. Paul is saying that you can't save yourself by your works, only by faith in what Jesus has done. But it seems here that James is saying that faith doesn't seem to be enough, but you also must do the word. But there's really no contradiction when we look at it. We'll look at it even more deeply when we get into chapter 2 of James. What James is saying, he's not saying that we are saved by what we do. But he's telling us that if we are truly saved by faith alone or not by our works. But that faith that we must be saved by alone. If it's true, if it's real, if it's authentic, it's going to necessarily produce obedience in the life of a true born-again Christian. He's telling us that the doing is not the grounds for our salvation, but it's the necessary result or consequence of our new birth. Do you understand the difference there? In fact, people have for years tried to pit Romans against James, really smart people, like Luther, Martin Luther, the the great reformer who, who turned the world upside down when he rediscovered the gospel as he read Galatians and Romans and started this little thing we like to call the Protestant Reformation. 
Well, Luther saw the grace of the gospel that we're not saved by what we do, but by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. And then he read James, and he called James the epistle of straw, meaning it couldn't hold up. And, and, and there's even speculation that maybe Luther didn't think that James should be in the Bible. And so this is how strongly this has been debated through the years, but there's really, as we stare at it more closely, there's really no contradiction between what Paul has said and what James is saying. In fact, we see in Romans, look, I know you guys think everything gets back to Romans, I know, I know, but I just want you to see this this truth all throughout the the Bible. Look at Romans chapter 5, Paul says exactly, in a sense, what James is saying here. At the end of Romans chapter 5, Paul has made this glorious argument in Romans chapter 5 that you are either in Adam, your first father, which is natural humanity. He's making, he's making this argument that all people have, that we're either in Adam, our first father, dead in our sins, or we're in Christ, the new man, and alive because of grace. And so he's basically saying there are only two types of people in the world. Those who are still dead in their sins, children of Adam, natural man, not yet born again, dead from that fountain of rebellious humanity, or we're in Christ, we're born again by grace, and so either sin reigns in us, in our natural state, if we're still in Adam, dead in our sins, unbelievers, or grace reigns in us because we've been given new life in Christ. So he's making this argument in Romans chapter 5 that really you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. That's the only option. And he says that if you're in Christ grace reigns in you. That's the end. Let me read Romans 5, verse 21. He says, as sin reigned in death, meaning those when when you were in Adam, still dead in your sin, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then Romans 6, he anticipates the objection that James is concerned with. He's saying that just that mere belief in that must necessarily lead to a life that in some measure obeys, does, strives to follow what it confesses. And he says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So Paul is making the same point that James is making here in James chapter 1 verse 22. That we're not saved by our works. Doing doesn't save us, but doing is a necessary consequence of the genuine Christian life. James's concern is what through the history of the church is a theological error called antinomianism. What does that mean? Antinomianism, antinomos means against anti-nomos, the law, against the law, or against God's commands. It's a kind of cheap grace that still resides in our human hearts, even though we want the free offer of salvation, we want the good news of the gospel, we want our eternity to be secure, we want salvation, we want forgiveness, But oftentimes we don't want the obedience, the new life that goes along with the grace. We want a kind of lopsided grace. We want a grace that only forgives, but not a grace that that now is our master, that now calls us to a new kind of life. And James' concern here is that type of life. 
There are numerous scriptures in the New Testament, not just in James, but all throughout the Bible, just a few. Let me read to you what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 15. He says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Next chapter over, John 15, verse 10. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So Jesus is saying, who, who are those? What, what does it look like? What does the true, born-again, regenerated, new life look like? It looks like somebody who loves me and obeys me. And then in the end of the Bible, the end of the, the, the New Testament, John, John Jesus' disciple, says in his first letter, 1 John chapter 2, Verses 3 through 6, this is a description of what Christians should look like in their life. He says in verse 3, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he once walked. So what's the point that James is making here, that Jesus has made and that John has made in 1 John? Is that obedience must follow the reception of the word in the true Christian life. I think that's really clear. I think that's a very straightforward point that James is making. Now, before we go on to two reactions to this truth, or two responses to this truth, we need to make a very important point about the balance. Because remember I prayed, I, I'm concerned about people who have very tender consciences in a good way. I think that's a good thing, but oftentimes very concerned about their assurance and where they stand with the Lord because of remaining sin in our lives. And by the way, all of us still fight residual sin. Amen? Amen. Amen. I know some of y'all are some of y'all are more quiet, but that's a that's a hundred percent right there, right? Amen. So this doesn't mean that we still don't struggle with sin and disobedience. Of course we do. That verse I just read you from 1 John chapter 2, verse 3 through 6. Let me read it again. Let me read 3 through 6 of 1 John 2. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says to him, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, let him, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he once walked, in which he walked. But two verses before that, look at this, this gracious understanding that the Bible has of the fight of sanctification. Look at what John says in two verses prior to verses 3 through 6 in 1 John 2. He says, he starts off this section where he's calling for obedience. He says in verses 1 and 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation. In other words, the wrath absorbing, grace extending, favor granting, sacrifice for our sins. And not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Meaning all types of people from every tribe and tongue that will trust in him. So do you see that balance there? Obey me. Obey me. This is what the true Christian life looks like. 
Oh, but when, you, but when you struggle with obedience, you have an advocate, Jesus, who is there interceding for you, reminding you of his love for you, that he died for you and made you new. This is an important understanding. This, this, this balance is, is important for our understanding of this passage properly. Because when we read verse 22 of James, it can either send us into a kind of prideful legalism or a despairing sense that there's no way that we will ever be able to be saved by God, a kind of, a kind of self-based righteousness on the other side of the ditch where we, we think there's no hope for us. So we need to understand what happens. We need a, a reminder of what happens in salvation. Our hearts are dead in sin. We cannot obey God. It's impossible. It's impossible. Mankind in his natural state cannot obey God sufficiently. We can't follow his commandments. We can't do the word. But what happens in the gospel that makes us be born again, remember we're born by the word, God sends his gospel, he sends the news of the crucifixion and resurrection and wrath-absorbing sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. So he sends the news of the greatest event in history that God poured out his wrath on Jesus, who's the perfect God-man, absorbed the wrath, died on the cross, removed God's punishment, rose again in victory. God causes that news to hit our hearts, and the Spirit of God makes us alive. It regenerates us. It now enables us where we were previously unable to obey God. We've now been made alive. We're born again. We've gone from Adam, dead in our sins, to being in Christ, made alive. That's the good news of the gospel. And when you're made alive, when you're born again, when you're regenerated with that new heart, that new spiritual heart, comes the gift of faith whereby you are now able to trust and lean on and put your hope in Christ and what he's done. That's why the Bible can say properly that you are saved by faith in what Christ has done, not by anything that you have done. And oh, by the way, even the faith that you exercise to put in Jesus, to receive his righteousness and have him take your sin is a gift that God gives you in the new birth. So do you see that? You're born again. You're made alive. But as we talked about either last week or weeks before, when you are made alive, that heart is a spiritually infant heart. It's new. You don't come, you're not born as a 40-year-old. Physically, you're born as an infant. And spiritually speaking, it's similar. We're born as spiritual babes. And although now we are enabled to follow God, it's an imperfect following. And now we've gone from the process of regeneration, conversion, being born again in salvation, to now sanctification, where the rest of the Christian life is this fight where we are now enabled, we've been born of the word, we receive the word, and now the rest of the Christian life is this struggle where we roll up our sleeves to do the word. And that's what James is saying to us here. The Christian life, I think, is pictured so beautifully in this quote from this um, British theologian, he was an Anglican, 
bishop in England back in the mid-1800s. I've quoted him so often here that many of you can probably sort of say this along with me. His name is William Arnaud, and he was a British pastor and theologian in the mid-1800s, a contemporary of, of Charles Spurgeon. And he said that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is not that one has sin and the other does not, but that the believer is taking God's side against his dreaded sin. That's the posture. Whereas the unbeliever is taking sin's side against a dreaded God. Do you see the difference in posture there? And, and the point is here is that, that that often doesn't just show itself so clearly in our lives. The, the person who is taking sin's side, the unconverted, unbelieving person who's taking sin's side against a dreaded God, may be one of the people that James describes here in verse 22 as deceiving themselves. They're just hearing the word of God and they've grown up in a religious atmosphere where they've been not taught the gospel clearly, where they've been taught that good works can save you, and that you're better than the knucklehead down the street, and so just kind of be glad that you are who you are, that you were born where you were born, and thank God you're not like these other people, and just give a little bit to charity, and do some good works, help a couple old ladies across the street, and don't do too bad of stuff, and you'll be okay. And those people are deceived. They think they're Christians, but they're actually taking sin side. They're taking their own righteousness side against God. Whereas the Christian, these people can sort of be happy in their ignorance, in their self-deception. But a Christian, a newly converted heart, oftentimes can really struggle and be kind of miserable because their heart is finally alive and now they're sensitive to the things that they still do that are not obedient to God. And so they wrestle and they struggle. And the challenge is the posture to take God's side against the remaining sin in our lives. And this is what this text is intended to call us to, that we would fight to be doers of the word. So one command. Now we see two responses. Two responses, verse 23 and 24. The first response. Let's read it. For if anyone is a hearer of the word... And not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. Now, this is a clear picture. And it's a kind of ridiculous analogy. And I think that part of the point is in the ridiculousness of it. I mean, who, well, maybe some of you guys would, I don't know, but, but who would get up in the morning and look at themselves all disheveled in the mirror and not make a change? Who, who, would, who would just let the, the spinach stay stuck in your tooth? Who, who would let themselves look completely unpresentable and not make a change? It's ridiculous. And James's point here is, is that's what this man is like. He, he looks at himself in, in the mirror. The mirror here is the, is the word of God. We'll see in the next verse that it's the perfect law of liberty. It, it, it discerns, it shows us ourselves. As that verse in Hebrews, it, it, it discerns us. It, it, it reflects back to us who we really are. It gives us a clear picture 
we look at it and we walk away unchanged. Now a question, let's, let's examine these type of people a little bit more closely. Why do people hear the word? Why do people stare into God's truth and go away unchanged? I think there's, there's, there's several varieties of this, several ways that we do this. One way, I've, I've alluded to it already, that we do this is that, that we've been wrongly taught that mental assent is enough. We've been wrongly taught that having good doctrine equals pleasing God. I think that I and many of you are particularly prone to this type of deception. I do. Because I think one of the problems in the American church is poor doctrine. And when you discover good doctrine, it's very easy to equate that with spiritual maturity. And that's not necessarily the case. And so you can sort of be satisfied in a self-deceiving way with just knowing the true gospel as opposed to all these people out there who don't understand the true gospel of grace. And we stop short. We receive the word, but we put no pressure on ourselves to actually do the word because we've deceived ourselves thinking that mental agreement is enough. Friends, people like us in churches like us are really, really prone to this. Another reason why, why people go away unchanged when they hear the word of God is I think we see pictures of this in the, the parable of the sower. Right, let, me, let, me, let me read to you the, the Jesus' interpretation of the parable of the sower. And you, you may be familiar with this. What, what's happened here at the beginning of Mark chapter 4 is Jesus is talking about a farmer who's throwing out seed. And this seed, I think, is representative of the gospel itself, the word of God. And it's hitting four different types of soil. And he speaks then, he interprets for his disciples and those who are listening what he means by this parable of this farmer who throws out this seed, seed representing the word of God, I think the the message of the gospel, and how it is reacted to differently by four different types of soil. And so listen to what Jesus, let me just read verses 13 through 19 of Mark 4. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? The sower sows the word. And these are the ones along the path where the word is sown. They, when they hear, Satan, le- Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on the rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. And others are, are those sown among thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. And then he goes on to describe the good soil that receives the word and it bears fruit, that fruit being obedience that's in keeping with repentance. But these three types of soil, he says, that second type of soil there, he says it's, I think this is very common in in our culture, in our day. People hear the word. It's not like they immediately reject it. 
They don't walk away. They don't look at it and say, ah, that's not for me. Don't, don't, don't think that's what's going on in James 1, verses 23 and 24. It's not a kind of immediate rejection. It's more subtle than that. They look at the word. They receive it with some measure of agreement. But then tribulation and persecution comes, and it pushes them away. Things don't go like they want, and they walk away from God. That's the second type of soil. Then, then the third type of soil, I think this is very common, it says that the, wor- the cares of this world come and they choke out the word. Again, that person isn't looking and hearing the message of the gospel, hearing the message of, of Christ, hearing the message of the Bible, and immediately rejecting it and sort of announcing to everybody that, you know what, the, the cares of this world are more important, so I'm going to walk away. That, that's not how it actually plays out. What, what that person says is, is they give mental agreement with it. They say, yeah, I like that message. I like it. I'm going to start kind of coming and hearing it more often. I might even get involved in the church a little bit. But, but you know what? Uh, six months in, five years in, 20 years in, uh, it's just, you know, it's kind of the, the luster has worn off. And man, I got a lot of stuff going on. Uh, it's just the, the, the cares of this world come and it chokes out obedience in that person. It chokes out true reception and they walk away rejecting God. And sometimes it's, it's over the course of not just a moment, but, but months or years or decades. Another way that people don't hear the word, people go away unchanged, is they just misunderstand the grace of the gospel. They just think that Christ has died for, as we talked about in the end of Romans, that they're just, you know, they can just do whatever they want. Or they think that the grace of the gospel is a kind of kickstart. I've been saved and now I've got to hold myself up to some sort of standard. I've got to do it on my own. That's the era of the Galatians. They thought that they were saved by grace, but if they did this, if they were circumcised, if they ate this food, if they did that, that's what would keep them in the faith. They don't realize that grace not only forgives, but grace is the power that sustains us, that fuels our obedience. That Not only do we depend on God for salvation at the beginning, but we depend on him daily for our obedience. And that takes a whole host of means of being with God's people, of exposing yourself to the word of God. And they think that just a kind of one-time hit to get them going is enough. And they run out of energy quickly. And they end up being like this man. They forget what they were like and they walk away. And finally, a reason why some people look at the word of God and they go away unchanged is I think simply because they're still dead in their sins. It's like the people who, the first soil, the, the, the Satan snatches it up. The word never really, they're dead, they're unable. Listen to what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 7 and 8. He says, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. They're just resistant. It just never, it never takes root in their life. They hear it. It can be a, it can be a, a, a clearly presented message of the truth of the gospel. It can be the best music, the best preaching, the best church, the best atmosphere, the best Mama praying, the best home that they grow up in, and their hearts are just dead, and they just don't hear it. They don't have ears to hear. Friends, that's just a reminder that we are completely dependent on God's grace to open up our ears. By the way, what I just described there, probably in our minds, we were thinking, oh yeah, I know that. A guy like that, he's like that. His heart is just hard to the gospel. 
Friends, on some level, that's all of us. Even if you were born in the most wonderful Christian home, you were still dead in your sins. Your heart was unable. Romans 8 is true of you, that you were hostile to God. You were unable to obey God. You're unable to do the word unless God intervenes and makes your heart new. And so we all approach this. We, we are all kind of like this man in verse 23 and 24 who is unable to make a change and will forget what he sees and walk away unless God does something. And if you're a Christian, God has done something. He's taken your old heart. He's given you a new one. And he now graciously exhorts you to obey him. And if you're not a believer... Here's the good news, which sounds sort of counterintuitive. The good news is, is that you can't do, there's nothing you can do to save yourself. You can't muster up a, enough good intentions or a desire for a better life to make this true in your, in, your, in your life. God must do it. And here's the good news. If you're hearing that and you're understanding that about yourself, you're realizing that, I think that's really strong evidence that God is actually waking you up from your deadness and giving you life. That's how he works. Right now, the Spirit of God is wooing you. Like he wooed Lazarus in his tomb when Jesus rose him from the grave. He's saying, Lazarus, get up. Get up. He's giving you life. So listen to him and obey him. If, he's, if the Spirit is speaking to you, obey Him and don't despair. Don't look to yourself. Look away from yourself and say, I'm hearing this. I'm realizing this. Don't let that cause you into a kind of self-despair. Look away from yourself to God. The fact that you're hearing this, the fact that you're convicted, the fact that you're despairing, I believe is evidence that God is waking you up. Listen to what Listen to what Charles Spurgeon said about this very thing. This is so, so rich. He says to a person that might be in that category that thinks, I'm, I've looked at the word a hundred times. I can't obey him. I think I'm dead in my sins. I think I'm dead in my sins. There's no, there's no way I can actually overcome my disobedience and sin. I'm dead. I realize it. What do I do? This is what Spurgeon would say. This is how he would counsel you and us. Let, listen to this, let this one great, gracious, glorious fact lie in your spirit till it permeates all your thoughts. According to the scriptures, it is a revealed fact that in due time Christ died for the ungodly when they were yet without strength. You have heard these words a hundred times maybe, and yet you have never before perceived their meaning. This, but you are now because the Spirit is awaking you. This is a cheering, there is a cheering savor about them, is there not? Jesus did not die for our righteousness, he died for our sins. He did not come to save us because we were worth saving, but because we were utterly worthless, ruined, and undone. He came not to earth out of any reason that was in us but solely and only out of reasons which he fetched from the depths of his own 
divine love. In due time, he died for those whom he describes, not as godly, but as ungodly. And who are the ungodly? Let me just parenthetically add and improve Chuck's quote here. Who are the ungodly? Those who are dead in their sins. Applying to them as hopeless, an adjective as he could as well have selected. If you have but little mind, yet fasten it to this truth, which is fitted to the smallest capacity. In other words, those who ain't very smart. And is able to cheer the heaviest heart. Let this text lie under your tongue like a sweet morsel till it dissolves into your heart and flavors all your thoughts. And then it will be little matter though, though those thoughts should be as scattered as autumn leaves. Listen to this last little sentence. Persons who have never shown in science nor displayed the least originality of mind have, ne- in other words, again, the dimwits like us, have nevertheless been able to accept the doctrine of the cross and have been saved thereby. Why should not you? Don't buy the lie that there's God can't save a person like you. Yes, you're dead in your sins. Yes, there's nothing you can do. Yes, there's no hope in your own merit. Yes, you deserve hell. Yes, you deserve to be separated from God for eternity. You're in a great place because you're, you're the type of person that God saves. You're the type of person who's walked away from the perfect law of God. You've walked away from the gospel. You've disobeyed him for all of your life. You've continually walked away like this man, unchanged. Today is the day of salvation. How do you go from being the man in verse 23 and 24, the one who walks away to the man who stares at it and is changed by the sovereign grace of God? Why not you? Why not you? That's the first response. It need not be us. What's the second response? Verse 25. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. Very briefly before we conclude and see this beautiful gospel pictured in baptism as a husband baptize his wife here in just a moment. Let's look closely at verse 25. It says that he's contrasting this this person with the person who walked away. This person looks. Verse 25, they look. The sense is that they stoop over. It's not just a glance. They don't just expose themselves occasionally. They stoop over. They peer into the perfect law, the law of liberty, the, the, the Bible, the word, the good news of the gospel. And they persevere. They persevere. They don't rush away. They stay there. They sit in it. When we look, here's what happens. In our sanctification, we stare into God's word. And as we look at it and we persevere, oftentimes, this is the battle of sanctification. It hurts. It stings. And as we take in God's word... And as we see things where we are falling short, it, it cause, the, 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 the person who's, who's not mature will, will, will rush away. They won't persevere. 
But we have, to, we have to stay in it for a while. We have to let the word be like a sword. Remember Ephesians, Hebrews chapter 4? It's like a sword, a two-edged sword. And what do swords do? They cut. And the word of God mortifies us. In other words, it slays us. It, it cuts away our remaining sin and it purifies us. And, and when you're cut, it's painful. It's painful. But part of the battle of sanctification is persevering in that feeling and not running away from it and letting the word of God do its cutting. That's one of the great challenges of the Christian life. And that's just one obstacle. Just think about the spiritual battle of our culture. One obstacle in our, in our, in our spiritual life is just the culture we live in. We are addicted to positive vibes and self-esteem. And we just want everything to be happy. We want our church services to be happy. We want everything to be upbeat and awesome. And we just, we just want, we want to be cheered up. We want to be patted on the back. We want to be motivated. We want to be encouraged. And we want to be sent out with a lollipop. And the Bible doesn't explain the Christian life that way. The Bible slays us oftentimes. Yes, it encourages us. But before the Bible heals us, it must wound us. And that's what happens to this man. He looks into this law. He looks into the word. And he hovers over it. And he perseveres. He sits in it for a while. Now right now, just one little aside. We're coming up on a new year, which is a wonderful time to kind of reorient, do an examination of your life, think about different postures, different habits, different disciplines. Right now, don't wait till December 30th. Right now, begin to consider, begin to construct, begin to engineer this upcoming life, this upcoming year in your life, in this upcoming year, so that you might carve out time in your life to persevere, to stare, to stoop over and look into God's perfect law and let it do its work. Right now, there's just a decision that everybody that's truly born again can make and is enabled to make, and the Spirit of God will help you make to stay, to fasten yourself, to give yourself to staring into God's word. You're not gonna understand it all. You didn't understand English when it was first being spoken to you, but you kept listening, and now you're fluent, most of you. And we hear, we listen, and we grow right now, right now. Maybe before you leave this room or before the sun sets on this day, you spend some time alone with God and think about ways that you can reorient your life so that you would look into and persevere and take in God's word and right now commit yourself to doing whatever it takes to work out your salvation and obedience and obey that word. What does obedience look like in my life? What does it look like? You, we all know. We, we all know areas of our sanctification where we're weak right now. What do you have to cut out? What do you have to add? Who do you have to drop? What do you have to say? What conversation do you have to have? Who do you have to remove from your life? What thing that distracts you? Do it right now. Obey God's word. It's the call. It's a gracious call. That leads us finally to the promise and I want us to see the motivation for all of this. It's not a kind of legalistic condemnation. It's a promise of blessing. James is not saying, do this, you sorry Christians. You unsanctified, ungodly, no good lot. No, he's calling us. He's exhorting us. The Holy Spirit 
through James is exhorting us to do the word. Why? Look at the end of verse 20. Let me read verse 25 again. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, listen to this, he will be blessed in his doing. There's a promise of blessing. And I think the context here is not the end of the age. We speak a lot about heaven here. We speak a lot about living for the next life. And that is certainly true. I think that's the trajectory and the emphasis of the Bible. But James is saying that there's joy, there's blessing to be had here. There's motivation for living this way, for fighting this good fight of sanctification, for striving to not just hear the word, but to do it. There's blessing. And of course we know that that's not some wrongly interpreted view, the prosperity gospel that thinks about some material gain. It's a spiritual wholeness is the blessing Jesus is talking about here. It's a peace with God. It's a satisfaction that comes with obedience. And this is what Jesus says himself. I end with this text. Remember we read John chapter 15 verse 10 earlier where Jesus was talking about obey my commandments. But listen to what he says in verse 11. Let me read verses 10 and 11 again. We read 10 earlier. Jesus says, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And then Jesus gives us the motivation. Verse 11, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Jesus is saying that joy, blessing in this life, follows obedience. What God gives us, what he promises us is, is, is joy. That's why he wants us to do his word. Let, let's not buy into any lie of this world that if we obey God, somehow we will miss out. The fear of missing out is a lie from the pits of hell. Let's pray. Father, as we prepare to see this gospel that we love so dearly lived out in the obedience of baptism by a sister in our church as she's baptized by her husband. I pray this word would would lay us all bare and cause us to run afresh to the gospel. For the person in this room who has looked at your law, heard your gospel a thousand times and walked away unchanged, I'd give them a new heart. Why not them? Why not you, as Spurgeon says? For those of us that are still struggling with doing your word, which is all of us, if we're honest, Lord, encourage us, encourage us, motivate us with joy, with full, complete joy that obedience brings. May this text help us to take your side against our remaining sin so that we might not deceive ourselves. Do this, I pray, Lord. Help us with this. Encourage us. Make us more like Jesus. Give us resolve to take action today with what you have spoken to us. In Jesus' name. Amen.